Joining us today from his attic in New Haven, Connecticut, New York Times columnist and author of The Decadent Society, Ross Dowsett. I'm Peter Robinson. Welcome to another Plague Time edition of Uncommon Knowledge. I'm at home in Palo Alto, California. Ross's book is The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Ross, welcome back. And I should explain, I should apologize to you, and, but explain to viewers that we recorded an, an interview on your book almost three months ago to the day, February 24th, as I recall. And then the coronavirus difficulties started. And as a result of those difficulties, there was some staff confusion, who was in the studio, who was, and we lost the tape. On the other hand, it's just as well because the world has changed. Ross, thank you for, for, thank you for making your way upstairs to the attic. It, it's up many, many flights, Peter. And, and the, truth, the truth is that this, that interview will be like, like, you know, the lost gospels or the missing works of Aristotle. <laughs> you know, people, exactly. scholars will be searching for it, hopefully <laughs> a millennia hence. But for the purposes of selling books, I think it's, it's much better for us to talk uh, post-pandemic rather than pre-pandemic anyway. Yes, yes, I think so. All right. You argue in the Decadent Society that the space age lasted about 30 years from the launch of Sputnik in 1957 to the Challenger explosion in 1986. Unmanned flights continued after that, but now I'm going to quote you, but none of it kindled the popular imagination as the giant leap for mankind, the moon landing, had done. Humanity had decided that whatever might be up there, it would probably remain indefinitely out of reach. This resignation haunts our present civilization. Since Apollo, we have entered into decadence. Close quote. You've got to explain that to me. The whole thing. I'm, I'm no, I was no great fan. I mean, you know, from my point of view, the space program is fine during the Cold War. We're trying to prove something to the Soviets. After that, it was a huge unnecessary federal expense. Better to have it shifted over to the private sector. So what? All right, Ross. Well, so I start with the space program in part because it's convenient in its timing. Um, so the, the big story I tell is a story of basically how the United States, Western Europe, and the whole Western world, starting around the time Neil Armstrong walked on the world, walked on the world, walked on the moon, entered into a period of economic deceleration, sort of tending towards stagnation, um, a period of sort of slow building political sclerosis and gridlock, um, a period of demographic decline, um, where we had fewer and fewer babies and now have too few babies to sustain our civilizations, and a period of sort of cultural and intellectual repetition and exhaustion where we have the same arguments and make the same science fiction blockbusters over and over again. Um, so that's, that's decadence. But I don't think it's just a coincidence, as you can tell from the passage that you just read, that this era of sort of stagnation and exhaustion began when essentially the frontier was closed. So I'm offering, you know, in part a version of the famous thesis that Frederick Jackson Turner offered about the American frontier when it closed at the end of the 19th century. His argument was in, in essence that the American character and the American way of life and you know, much of what we thought of as sort of characteristically American were, was shaped by the existence of a frontier, a, a zone of exploration and obviously a zone of not just settlement but conquest in that case. 
And I think something similar was true of the space era, the era from, um, in certain ways, you could, you could fold in the whole run up from the Wright brothers. So, you, you know, it takes us 70 years to get from Kitty Hawk um, to Apollo. And that's a pretty impressive run. And during that run, at a certain point, starting really with the sci-fi of the 40s and 50s, it started to be taken for granted that the stellar frontier, the frontier of space, was going to be at least somewhat like prior frontiers here on Earth. And that after the moon, there would be space stations and moon bases. And after that, we would go to Mars. And after that, we would expand still further. And this is where you get, you know, the spirit of the original Star Trek series. And I think once that was taken away, or once it became clear that that kind of exploration and certainly settlement wasn't going to be possible in the, in the immediate future, I think something did, a horizon did disappear from American and sort of the, not just American society, but the whole developed world. And we were sort of left alone with ourselves with nowhere else to go. And I think that feeling contributes to the larger patterns of sterility and exhaustion. It's sort of this sense that, um, you know, there's a ceiling, a literal ceiling on all of human effort that we haven't figured out how to break through. Hmm. All right, we will come have back. I, have I that. persuaded you to invest? You have not in persuaded me exactly, but, and, but, uh, but, but we've got your thesis nicely laid out. Um, I should. I would like to note, by the way, that one of America's public leading public intellectuals just cited Star Trek as an authority. I, that uh, this is important. Um, a signifier, not an authority. A, signif a signifier. <laughs> right. Fair enough. All right. So let's go through these qualities of decadence that you discuss in the book. Stagnation. You write about the four horsemen. There are four of these qualities. Let's 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 go through them. Quoting you, stagnation. Twenty years ago, it was common for Americans, especially American conservatives to regard stagnation as much more a European problem than an American one. But America looks less unique today, less dynamic, less exceptional, and the distinctions between the economies of the developed world look more like the narcissism of small differences, close quote. Okay, so I do recall our first interview in which I said, doubt it, doubt it, doubt it. Have you not been reading the economic statistics? The economy was growing at more than 3% a quarter. Unemployment was the lowest it had been in 50 years, and there was nothing in Europe that could touch that. Well, that was three months ago. Um, I think the pandemic go is ahead. a sufficiently exceptional event that you can, you know, you, you I can, can still, can, I can still lay can that still, argument you can against still you. Cite the Trump economy against against my stagnation thesis. Right. And I think before before we forget what it was like, but while we can still remember the Trump economy. How do you handle that in your argument? Things were going better economically. Yes. yes, and I think it's I think it's important to stress that what what I'm describing as economic stagnation is not perfect stagnation. It's not mm -hmm. um, it's not um, you know zero growth. It's and it's certainly not economic catastrophe. Right? We haven't lived through the kind of period that you know some of Bernie Sanders' friends and admirers have argued that we lived through, where you know, everybody got suddenly poor after Ronald Reagan became president or something right. like that. That's, that's all wrong. Right. But what did happen starting in the 1970s was a sort of punctuated periods of deceleration and stagnation with occasional returns to the kind of growth that we had taken for granted in the post-war period. So you have the period of stagflation in the 1970s, followed by the Reagan boom 
followed by a falling off in the early 1990s, followed by the dot-com boom. And at that point, that's the, the 20 years ago that, that in the quote you mentioned, it takes us back to the dot-com boom. In the dot-com boom, it was possible to say, you know, the look- The dot-com boom, we better, there have been, there, I there live in several Valley, right? so the you late, know, the everybody- late, the late 1990s, the golden right, the years when I was, was, sort of the when I was right, 18 right. and everything was perfect, yes, exactly. basically. Um, so at, at that point, at that point, it was possible to say the stagflation of the 70s and the recession of the early 1990s were sort of hiccups. And there was and between Reagan and Clinton, you'd had a kind of return to growth. But then right. you go through the dot com bust, the slow growth of George W. Bush's presidency the financial crisis and the very, very slow recovery from that. And fortunately, when we last recorded, we hadn't had a recession in that long period of slowly compounding growth. And that meant that over the 12 years from 2008 to 2020, we did gradually grind the unemployment rate down to to very low levels. And we did Mm -hmm. sort of maintain a solid 2% 2% growth a year in the part of the Obama presidency and certainly, certainly the Trump presidency. So that's all good news, but it's only relative good news, right? Because it's the, the growth rates that we consider a booming economy under Donald Trump are not at all as good as the growth rates that were considered a booming economy when Ronald Reagan was in the White House. Right. And right. they're paid for by a much, much higher level of deficits and debt then, you know, I mean, people talked about Reagan running deficits, but they were nothing. As, as nothing compared to the deficits of today. And I think in the big picture, a way to look at it is we've gone from a period after World War II when you had surging growth, 4 to 5% growth with, by contemporary standards, very low deficits, and lots of that growth clearly going to the middle and working classes, to a period of not impoverishment, but poorer performance for the middle and working class, growth that's even when it's there is much slower, all of it Mm -hmm. paid for by much, much more federal spending. So we're in effect, we're a rich country that is paying ourselves to create the perhaps the illusion of stronger growth than the fundamentals of our economy would achieve. So Um, I'm going to push back just a little bit. I don't want to become tendentious or I mean, you make an argument. It's a wonderful book. Everybody ought to read it. But it, it worries me a little bit on this question of stagnation that, in my judgment, you can't really quite clinch the argument. Here's what I can say. All right, Ross, if you set the standard at the growth of the 1950s, I grant you, we're growing more slowly now. But let me tell you what the generation of the ni- who went back after the Second World War, clue number one, to rebuild the American economy. My father's generation, he graduated from high school in the middle of the depression. These people had lived through the Great Depression and the Second World War. Set your bar, set your standard a little earlier. Set it in 1937 or 38 or 36. And the notion that we've had overall growth, maybe in the Reagan period, it got to 7% for for one quarter and maybe in the last 15 years, it's averaged closer to 2%, 2.5%, whatever. By the standards of this country, 70, 80 years ago, this has been a long, pretty miraculous display. And by the standards of human history, 2% growth compounded over five, six, seven decades, average of 2% growth, 
is miraculous. Economic growth is hard. And Ross doubted as being slightly, right. or no, this one is, could argue, okay, so you get the point. So you're you right. Take, so you, you can take what, the same set of facts and construe it entirely differently. But this is right. But this is, and this is an important sub-theme of my book, right? Which is that mm-hmm. there are defenses to be offered of what I'm describing as decadence, right? right? And right. I mean, right. I think you are sort of shifting the bar by taking us back to the Great Depression, which was a <laughs> uniquely terrible moment economically in the history of the United States and the world. And I think the growth of the post-war era is distinctive, but it is, you know, comparable in certain ways to other periods of growth across the 19th century and into the 20th before the Depression hit, right? So, you know, the long period of the Industrial Revolution seems to achieve more economic growth, more productivity growth, um, high, faster rising wages at various points than we've had over the last 20 or 25 years. Now, your second point that at a certain point, if you're rich enough, compounding just means that, you know, one to 2% growth is still pretty good. That's, yes. That is the sort of case for um, the economy as it is right now. And there are people who have literally written books um, with titles like Fully Grown, which is uh, by a, a German economist, a book that came out in the last year, arguing that this, that this is what we should expect from economies that are as developed as our own, and that it's a good thing because it means that, you know, we aren't going to despoil the earth and, um, you know, hasten climate change and so on. Mm-hmm. That that sort of a certain growth slowdown is a good way for us to live within our means. Now, that's not the Ronald Reagan sort of pro-growth vision, exactly. Um, It's more of a sort of making your peace with okay enough growth. And it does, and now I will play my last three months of economic (laughs) crisis card. It leaves you pretty vulnerable to the kind of shocks that inevitably come along, right? If you're getting 5% growth, and you have a pandemic or a financial crisis and so on, then you've built up a lot more, um, a lot more wealth to sort of fall back on than if you're puttering along at 2% growth per year and suddenly the entire economy is shut down by, by a plague. But I will oh, certainly concede to you that it could, it could be worse. And look, three months after our first conversation, would I take the Trump economy of you know, three months ago back? I mean, much as I enjoy my attic, of course I would. Right. Um, A second horseman is technological stagnation. I'm quoting the Decadent Society. Everyday life was more radically transformed by earlier technological breakthroughs than we've seen recently. And over the last two generations, the only truly radical change has taken place in the devices we use for communication and entertainment. Close quote. Okay. This is Peter Thiel's argument, we were promised flying cars and we got 140 characters, right? And Zoom. We got Zoom. And Zoom. And Zoom. Um, do you want to elaborate on that or are you happy with that, that my crude characterization? Of I mean, I think it's, in certain ways, it's sort of similar to the back and forth we just had, the argument over, right. over technology, right? Like it's a case where technological progress has not stopped. And neither Peter Thiel nor Tyler Cowen nor any of the prominent people making versions of this argument would say that it has stopped. Um, Although Thiel can be pretty pessimistic, I think. But, But what has happened, and I think this is right, is that innovation has been concentrated in a much narrower set of sectors than was the case, again, from 1840 to 1970. And innovation at the edge 
has benefited sort of smaller groups of people and hasn't had the kind of broad spectrum changes that penicillin and the automobile ushered in. And the, and the technological changes we've had have not cashed out in major economic growth. You've had one big productivity surge from the internet that lasted from about 1996 to 2001. And otherwise, our productivity growth in the internet age does, does look European. But then the other quote, point is oh, that... Go ahead. No, no, go for it. Well, no, I just, I wanted to, um, I'm quite proud of myself because something has happened in the intellectual world since we last spoke. Matt Ridley has published a new book, How Innovation Works. Let me quote this. Some innovation is speeding up, but some is slowing down. In my lifetime, that's Matt Ridley's lifetime, I've seen little or no improvement in the average speed of travel. Boeing 747s are still flying half a century after they were launched. Innovation is now largely a digital phenomenon. Okay, he takes the same set of facts and he says, look, innovation happens in some sectors for a while and then it shifts to other sectors. He grants the argument that you just made and that Peter Thiel just made, often makes that innovation is largely digital right now but it's still innovation. It's still pretty remarkable. The iPhone, everybody has an iPhone. I was in Mexico not long ago and you drive to the outskirts of Mexico City, which are genuine poverty, people living in homes constructed of cinder blocks with tin roofs. And you see people walking around the street, they're talking on iPhones. That's not nothing. Or the logistics revolution that permits goods to travel at much higher speeds, where even with all these current difficulties with China, um, iPhones are on my mind because I ordered an iPhone and up the next day, Apple sent me a map so I could track the progress of this iPhone from Shenzhen or some, I can't remember, but from China here and there I am tracking and it arrives days later. That's pretty remarkable. It is innovate, that's not stagnation. That's not decadence, is it? Well, no, I mean, Silicon Valley is not generally decadent, although the iPhone was invented, well, I mean, it was invented 14 years ago now. So mm -hmm. we consider it the hot new invention and it's now almost a generation old. And I mean, I think you can tell a story about Silicon Valley where you have a huge initial burst of innovation, which does show up in the productivity statistics and creates the big companies, the big behemoths of the internet um, that we sort of all, all that rule all of our lives now. But that wave crests again about 10 or 15 years ago. And the last decade or so, Silicon Valley has spent a lot of time and money trying to apply digital innovation to other sectors of the economy, all those mm -hmm. other areas that we used to see rapid innovation and transformation in, and hasn't had that much success. They've had a lot of success in a way with the app economy, except the app economy tends to lose a lot of money, um, you know, the Ubers and DoorDashes and so on. Their financial model is sort of similar to the whole US economy model. Just as we float the economy on deficits, they float their, their labor saving or time saving businesses on venture capital that never quite makes its money back. And then you have more extreme examples like Theranos and WeWork that just are sort of overextended or fraud, fraudulent. Um, so I'm not sure. I think, I, think, I think the amazing innovation of Silicon Valley is sort of clustered in this, you know, 1990 to 2006 window. And the last 15 years have been somewhat less impressive. But then the other point is that what does this innovation, how does this innovation affect 
other areas um, of our common life? How does it affect um, our politics? How does it affect our, mm -hmm. our sex lives, our romantic lives? How does it affect our intellectual lives? And there, I think, even to the extent that you can say, oh, Silicon Valley is really innovative, though its cultural impact has fed stagnation in other areas. Um, All right, so let me go on to the third of your four horsemen. And this one, you have to argue the first two, the economic stagnation and technological stagnation. In my judgment, you have to argue that pretty strenuously as I just forced you to do, because it's possible to construct a competing argument on exactly the same set of facts I or I attempted to suggest, or at least, yep. all right, you yes. see I'm skeptical. On the next one, you have the argument entirely on your side, in my judgment. Not that you need me to give you a critique on each of your points, but still, this one is staggering. Sterility, quote, I'm quoting you, to replace itself from generation to generation, a society needs to average 2.1 births per woman. Across the European Union in 2016, the average was 1.6 children per woman. The American fertility rate was relatively robust, 1.87, but it was still too low to sustain the present population. By 2018, it was down to 1.7, the lowest ever recorded and headed lower still. Aside from Israel, there is no rich country in the world whose population would not, absent immigration, be on track to shrink. Close quote. Staggering. What's going on? And incidentally, what explains the exception of Israel? So no one is completely sure what's going on. There is a obvious story to tell about why fertility rates fall with wealth and economic development and female empowerment. Um, uh, you know, you, you ha people have fewer kids as infant mortality rates fall for obvious reasons. They have fewer kids as agrarian economies give way to industrial and post-industrial economies and children become something you have to invest in rather than something you reap benefits from by putting them to work on the farm. And then it's plausible that they fall as women have more access to more roles in life than just wife and mother. So all, all of that makes a pretty intuitive argument for why fertility rates would fall from, let's say, 6 to 2.7. But the rest of the fall, the fall into sub-replacement territory, is happening in defiance of what people actually say they want. So if you, you know, if you poll people in Europe and the United States, not just you know, conservative Catholic men, um, but, um, you know, normal, well-adjusted. Says, 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 says the recent father of a fourth baby. That's right. But normal, normal, well-adjusted men and women still tend to say that they want um, upwards of two, often like 2.5 kids as an, as an average. And demographers in the 1960s sort of expected fertility rates to settle around there. That was what people said they wanted. They, everyone is free and empowered, and now they'll have the number of kids they want. But instead, as, you, as in the passage you just quoted, they've settled much lower, sometimes much, much lower. There are places like South Korea that have a fertility rate that's half replacement level. And that has something to do with changes in the relationship between the sexes, the combination of economic changes that have made um, the male breadwinner sort of less of a force to be reckoned with, um, and also cultural and technological changes, I think, that have disrupted the sort of romantic scripts and the way men and women mate and marry and pair off. So it's not just 
lately it's not just um, childbearing that's declined, it's not just marriage, it's sex itself. In the last 20 years, people in countries like Finland and Germany and the United States are having less sex than they did when I was a teenager. And l let me tell you, that's kind of amazing because I didn't think it was possible for, anyway, um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so, so that's, there's some kind of cultural explanation there. There's some explanation that's bound up in secularization because uh, religious people tend to have more kids than secular people. And as to so that, as, that doesn't account for the Israeli, it's not the Orthodox. No, well, the Israeli, the Israeli, right. Persons. And so the Israelis suggest basically that if, if you wanted to distill it to a fine point that um, having kids is more likely if you live inside history, if you live in an environment where you have a sense of external threat and sort of shared internal mission and purpose. And in Israel, where that comes from, I think is clear given, given recent and longstanding Jewish history. But it's also clear that there is no other large community in the Western world right now that has that equivalent sense of mission, purpose, and threat put together. Hmm. Okay. That's, you, you remind me of a conversation I had a couple of years ago with an Israeli woman and I asked her how her, we were, long story, but the, we were at a conference in France where there was rock music blaring and people were walking around the Mediterranean beach dressed in ways that my parents would not have approved of, let's put it that way. And we discussed the difference between the society on display there and the society back in Israel. And, and she said, well, the difference is my country is still a cause, which is your point. Yep. Yeah. All right. Sclerosis. And here you're talking largely about politics. In the first months you write, the Obama administration had high hopes for remaking the nation, quote, but the hopes proved del diluted, but it was an important delusion because it reflected an understandable belief, namely that American politics could still work the way it used to work under presidents as different as Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan, a failed president, Hoover, Carter, would lead to a landslide for the opposition party, which would lead to a dramatic shift in policy, close quote. Today, we live in an era of governmental decadence not epic disasters, though those certainly come along, but simply an expectation that the government will fail more often than it once did. <laughs> and I, three months ago, pushed back and said, <laughs> look what the Trump administration has accomplished. I wish to retract that. Ah, do I? I don't know. Go ahead. What do you, what do you make of it? What do you make? Well, well okay, I mean, let's, I think just, let's just we... take that as it applies to the coronavirus. It's has, has any sector of government from county executives in where you live in Connecticut up to the president really distinguished itself? I mean, well, outside the U.S., I, I would say that there are places that I sort of painted with the broad brush of decadence that have distinguished themselves by having undecadent and successful responses. So the Japan, countries of the Pacific Rim, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, New Zealand have all to date contained or even crushed the virus. Um, countries in Eastern Europe have done a pretty, a pretty impressive job. Countries that are sort of thought of as on the populist nationalist fringe have done impressively well. Hungary, the, Poland. Yep. And not only the Czech Republic, Slovakia, I mean, the whole of Eastern Europe has very gotcha. low rates at this point. But what you, and 
And Germany has done has done quite well. Um, German efficiency still exists in in epidemiolo epidemiological governmental responses. But if you think of the core of the sort of Western developed world as the US, France, Great Britain, um, you know, the low countries, um, up in up into up into Sweden, you know, the, the response has been highly ineffective, I would say. And but also decadent in the sense that it, it hasn't been totally catastrophic, right? The United States has not had the kind of worst case scenarios that people were projecting two months ago. Um, we've done slightly better than Italy and France in certain ways. Um, we're not the worst, we're not in the worst shape of any country in the world. We're, and if you, if Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio had handled the two weeks before the outbreak better, then we might be in even better shape. But we're sort of, you know, as this is what decadence is. Decadence is when 100,000 people die from a novel disease in three months. And you say, well, eventually we'll get a vaccine. And in the meantime, we're probably not going to beat this thing. So we're just going to sort of putter along and hope that summer and maybe masks, although we'll have a culture war about masks, right? Um, we'll, we'll deal with it. And there, I mean, there's an interesting debate among conservatives about what, what is the decadent response, right? There, I have many conservative friends who think that a non-decadent U.S. would sort of it would protect old people better than we've done, but otherwise it would sort of tough it out and it would absorb, right. the, absorb the threat of the virus and continue on with life as normal. Um, and my view is a little different. I, th I feel more like George, the George Patton model. I think a non-decadent United States would have only 20,000 casualties and would be on its way to suppressing the virus all over the country. But, but either way, we haven't done either, right? We've sort of, we're right. in this intermediate zone of, um, Partial lockdowns, you know, sort of partial lockdowns that nobody can even explain. Right, I, the rules, rules, they right, rules they that even, they're, they're keeping us in our houses, but they can't provide a rationale. We're, we flattened the curve. Okay, why are we still home? Nobody can explain it. Nobody can explain it. Right. No, we're just sort of we're just sort of flailing, and and yeah, and then the and then you know you've had. I mean, I think. I think President Trump's handling of the crisis has left a great deal to be desired, but so has the professional bureaucracy's handling of the crisis. And in, in the book, in the chapter you quote, I, I cite, I think it's a Brookings paper sort of charting the rate of government failures from the 1980s to the present, arguing that we've had more failures per administration lately than in the past. And at the time I was writing, you know, the worst Trump administration failure maybe was the response to the hurricane in Puerto Rico, um, but now I think, you know, the CD, the CDC's failure to produce a test is staggering in certain ways. It's probably the worst government failure since the great recession or the Iraq war. It's quite devastating. So, yeah. So here we are. Um, the last of your four horsemen repetition. You write about the movie back to the future. We are now as far from the Reagan 1980s as the teenage Marty was from his parents, 1950s. And yet the gulf of years separating us from 1985 feels, feels, subjective point. Subjective. On the other hand, this time I share what, I sh my feeling co coincides with yours. So I'm not going to, I won't wrangle with you on this one. The gulf of years separating us from 1985 feels far narrower than the distance from the Eisenhower era, the original film used to such effect. How come? Why should this be? Well, in part, it's 
it's entangled with all of the other forces, right? So as a society has fewer children and gets older, and especially when it has fewer children after having such a huge influential generation like the baby boom generation comes through, you get less dynamism and innovation and transformation. And you get more, I think, inevitably more nostalgia and repetition. Older societies are naturally more nostalgic. I can feel myself getting more nostalgic for the 1990s every day, as I, as I mentioned. So there's some of that. There's, you know, there's the fact that if, if I'm right, that economic growth and technological change have decelerated, those are forces that drive cultural transformations. And so um, if your only engine of cultural transformation is... Um, the internet and the iPhone rather than, um, you know, the automobile and the jet airplane, then maybe you get less transformation that way. Um, and I, I do, and I do think, and this again is sort of my skepticism about the internet, but I think one thing that's happened and maybe accelerating because of the coronavirus is a kind of consolidation in mm. culture where forces that even forces that are supposed to sort of break things apart as the internet was supposed to do end up rewarding incumbents instead. So in my own industry, right in journalism, the internet came along and suddenly anyone could have a blog and everyone said, ah, you're going to have an army of Davids. This was the, the er blogger Glenn Reynolds line, an army of Davids was going to take on the Goliaths of the mainstream media. But instead the, the blogosphere sort of was absorbed into Twitter and Facebook, or it was sort of absorbed into existing media, the existing media ecosystem. And the main effect of the internet was to kill off small newspapers all over the country and leave my own newspaper, the New York Times, in certain ways more, if not more powerful, at least larger and more sort of more outsized in its influence than ever and before. How many online subscribers does the Times have now? I'm going to forget the exact number, but more, more million, I mean, millions and millions, more people read right. the times today, more people pay to read the times today by far than at any point in our history. Um, right. So I, I'm trying to agree with you here. Yeah. As far as I can tell, we have two national newspapers, yep. the New York times and the wall street journal, both profitable, both growing online and every other newspaper in the country with the exception of those that have become pet projects for billionaires, which uh, you keep a straight face here because you have colleagues who work for this organization, so don't respond in any way, but I would name the Washington Post. It's just, it's not, it doesn't have anything like the reach of the time. We have two newspapers. We have two national newspapers and regional newspapers have collapsed. Yeah. Your point. Your or point. or in, in academia, right? Again, the internet came along and there was this great, this sense that it was going to be this tremendously disruptive force and you know that distance learning was going to break up the old higher education monopoly and there that may still happen right there are a lot of people right. who look at the current right. crisis and think that's what's going to happen but in practice what's happening at the moment is as sort of you have this demographic slowdown so you have fewer kids going to college increasingly so what's happening is a version of what happened with newspapers smaller colleges regional colleges and universities are struggling and the Ivy League is going to emerge probably, you know, like, like the New York Times, as influential, if not more influential than ever. So there's a lot of, I think there's more consolidation. I think this happens in, in music, right? Like big acts. Taylor Swift does really well in the internet economy, in the iTunes economy. The mid-level the mid band that had a smaller audience doesn't do as well. So there's more, 
I think you get more repetition win, in part because there's winner take all phenomenon. Yep. Yeah, yeah. There's the more internet, consolidation than right. people expected when the internet started. Right. And people make movies, I should say, and the international market for movies. Um, again, the sort of fruit of globalization, which has made Hollywood richer than ever before, discourages innovation in its own way because it's much safer to make another superhero movie because you know it will sell internationally right. than adult and challenging and complicated. And by adult and challenging and complicated, I just mean like, you know, Amadeus or Braveheart or like, you know, the movies that won Best Picture in the 1980s and 1990s. I don't mean like Calle's de Cinema sort of obscure, you know, obscure art films. Or if you, well, this is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go at, I'm not going to engage in a discussion of cinema with the, with the movie <laughs> critic for the National Review, but Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, just those, the, those fairly straightforward comedies that Hollywood seemed perfectly capable of producing with some ease, bringing up ba baby, Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn. They're written, they're, 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 there are ideas, yeah. they're character being portrayed. It's not just cartoons, right? Well, no, and even what's striking is that the movie, the comedies that we thought of as sort of lowbrow 20 years ago, Right, Look 20 years good. ago, we would have had this conversation and you would have said, well, we've gone from the era of Cary Grant and bringing up baby to the era of Vince Vaughn and old school and so on. And, and there's some clear decline. But in the last 10 years, the Vince Vaughn kind of comedies have vanished too. the romantic comedy, not just the sophisticated kind, but the unsophisticated kind. You know, some of them have migrated to Netflix, but really whole genres have sort of disappeared as the special effects blockbuster has sort of taken control of the industry. Even, I think you could argue that the last mainstream comedy that was an original property to hit it big was The Hangover. Um, you know, again, a lowbrow movie. Roughly? Do you remember? Like, I think 2000 and it was about 10 years ago, I think. Okay. Um, and the last, yeah. the last blockbuster romance, uh, this, I'm offering this, I may be mistaken, but the last blockbuster romance that wasn't derivative was Titanic, wasn't it? Isn't that 15 Listen, years ago? 20, Titanic was 22 years ago. Titanic was when me? I was 18 years old. And James Cameron, that he made Titanic, and then he made one Avatar movie, and he's been trying to make three Avatar sequels ever since. And we may, we may never, that's sort of the, that's sort of the ultimate, the ultimate form of decadence is when you start making blockbuster sequels, but you never finish them. All right. Ross, the end of the book, which suggests ways in which decadence might end, but first suggests ways in which it might not. Just, it might just roll on and on and on. Uh, we might remain to use your term comfortably numb mm -hmm. or enjoy a kind of kindly despotism. This is horrifying, really, but explain what you mean by those two terms. So comfortably numb just means that you know, the things, the innovation that we've had has been innovation that creates virtual realities that I think, I think tend to tranquilize people more than they sort of spur them to action. So even politics on the internet, which seems so wild and crazy and insane, often ends up being a, sub, a virtual substitute for real political activism and engagement. People scream at each other on Twitter but they don't found new mass movements. They don't join their Grange or their labor union. They don't start voter registration drives and so on. So you can imagine, I think, the world of the internet becoming ever more immersive, but ever more of sort of a substitute for real world action. 
I mean, I think pornography clearly plays this role in the romantic landscape. Um, and then you have the world of, of drugs where Western society has moved from the age of heroin and speed and coke to the age of sort of tranquilizers and, and opioids and marijuana and drugs that sort of numb, numb people. So you can, I think you can imagine a world, instead of bread and circuses, it's, you know, pot and virtual reality as the Ross, numbing agents. Take a look at the following clip, if you would. I have it all morning, so let's hover over to the driving range and hit a few virtual balls in space. Now we did that yesterday. I don't want to do that. Well, then what do you want to do? I don't know. Something. Wow. Is that it? That's it. Yes. All right. That's the, that's, it's, it's Wally. It's one part Wally and it's one part Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. So it's Wally right. with a little more pornography on those screens than you can put in a Pixar entertainment. An, another, one of the ways in which the decadent society might end well, you describe as Renaissance. Explain that. Well, that just means all kinds of innovation and transformation happening all together. Um, so I don't think there's, I don't think it's that you need one thing to, you know, one great political leader or one well, invention. Could, could, I, could I, would you describe at least as a kind of small version of what you have in mind, the, the 1980s. Now, of course, my bias is obvious. I served as a, I was a kid speechwriter in the yeah. Reagan White House. I loved the man that was a high time in my own life, but stagflation of the 1970s, the Soviets seemed to be on the march in the 1970s and somehow or other, the election of this one man either causes or coincides with economic growth, federal budget coming under some control, at least as a proportion of GDP. Well, as a proportion of GDP, it, it did, which is the only hope we ever, okay. And then, uh, and then of course it all ends in the collapse of the Soviet Union, pretty good decade. Is that the kind of thing yes, that you mean? Yes, I, I, think, I think we had two, you could call them mini renaissances and one, and they, and they had sort of connected roots in California and Silicon Valley, obviously Reagan, comes out of comes right. out of California in that way, but you have, um, yeah, the combination of the successes of what now gets called neoliberalism, the successes of the Reagan-Thatcher economic program, which were real, right. um, the victory, victory ultimately in the Cold War and sort of a successful foreign policy strategy, um, and the invention of the transistor, creating a sort of what now looks like the last surge of Western growth, which mm -hmm. gives you the 80s and then the Clinton 90s, um, I think, I think together. So those, yeah, those are, and, and gives you, I mean, well, on the cultural side, I think, I think the, I think the 80s, the 80s and, and late 90s are both sort of have more cultural energy and cultural dynamism in certain ways than we, than we do today. But both of them also stalled out. So you need, it turned out that you needed more than just um, the Reagan-Thatcher medicine to escape the impact of these deeper forces that I'm describing. All right. And the final way that you, in which you describe the end of the decadent society is simply catastrophe. And that was all speculative. When we did our interview, our, the, the great lost interview three months ago, I had to say, Ross, what? what what could you possibly mean? What could possibly end? This world is wealthy. And, and of course, now, now we're in it. 
is this an example of is this could could this be the end i don't think this is the end it doesn't seem like it it seems more like a sort of anticipatory indicator of what could happen and where our vulnerabilities and weaknesses are um you know i i mean i god willing we're going to come through the pandemic there's going to be a vaccine its fatality rate is higher than some people wanted to believe, but not as high as the worst case scenario suggested. Um, but you know, even, even under this level of pressure, you can see how one catastrophe can beget other crises, right? So it's not a coincidence that while the rest of the world is on its knees, China is flexing its muscles in Hong Kong and you know, skirmishing along the Indian border, not a place that people anticipated being a flashpoint. You know, you can imagine it's not clear how the European Union will come out of this crisis. It's not clear what will happen in the developing world. It's not clear how the, fast the economy will, will recover. I mean, I think the good news is we have passed a lot of legislation. The Federal Reserve has been pretty active. The stock market has been stabilized. People are getting unemployment checks, however, haphazardly in some states. So you could argue that on the economic side, we, have, we haven't passed the test, but we're, we're performing a little better than maybe my decadence hypothesis would have, would have expected. But on other fronts, like we were talking about before, the CDC, you know, institutions that had one job have been totally <laughs> unable to right. carry out that job in the face of a challenge like this. Ross, let me ask you what you make of a couple of, COVID is obviously one of them, we just discussed that, but let me ask you what you make of a couple of other developments, related developments, since we talked three months ago. These are the, these are the, this is what makes me happy that tape got lost. I really want to hear what you make of this. You said a moment ago that Israel lives inside history. It still feels itself as a cause. And then you said just seconds ago that China is newly assertive. Listen to this passage. I came across this the other day, and it's very striking. This is George Kennan in his book in the mid-1950s on American diplomacy. It's a longish quotation, but it sets up a question. Surely there was never a fairer test of national quality than this, than the then Cold War. In light of the circumstances, the thoughtful observer of Russian-American relations will find no cause for complaint in the Kremlin's challenge to American society. He will rather experience a certain gratitude to providence not a lot of intellectuals aside from you right that way these days, a gratitude to Providence, which by providing the American people with this implacable challenge has made their entire security as a nation dependent on their pulling themselves together and accepting the responsibilities of moral and political leadership that history plainly intended them to bear, close quote. And now China is challenging us does this push us back inside history? Can we rally? Can, can the new Cold War represent a tonic for our own society? It's possible. I do. Oh, come I, on, give me a little something, a little more enthusiasm than that. Well, I mean, I just think, I think, you know, we, we're watching at this, at this particular moment in time, we are watching China, you know, this virus broke out in China. And there was about a month when everyone said, oh, this is a test for the Chinese system and they're going to fail and be thrown into crisis. This is going to be their Chernobyl. And instead they, you know, using ruthless and vicious methods managed to suppress the virus. 
It spread throughout the world. The US and Western Europe are struggling mightily with it. And meanwhile, China is flexing its muscles and we're having arguments about, you know, what, what Twitter should append to President Trump's tweets. And I, I do feel like if China is the new test, the next test, if China is maybe even stronger than I suggested in, in the book, then we are not as well prepared to meet it as we were to meet the Soviet threat 60 or 70 years ago. So I can certainly tell you an optimistic story where the, ex China, I think the optimistic story is that China shows there are some, there's enough similarities between China and the US now, especially in sort of, you know, the combination of a sort of surveillance state that sort of watches everyone's every move and a sort of a culture that's focused on health and wealth instead of purpose and meaning for China to sort of loom as a kind of cautionary tale for the US. It's like, well, we don't, we don't want to keep converging with China. We don't want to have Chimerica, this thing that some of these optimists imagined, something that was happening, but that optimists imagined was a good thing. And so that, that certainly could be a spur and the inevitable challenge of China could be a spur out of decadence for us. Um, so that's, that's possible. It's quite possible, but I am, but sitting right here right now, watching how China has reacted to a virus that started in China versus how we've reacted to it. I'm not overwhelmed with optimism about um, our inevitable victory in the new Cold War. All right. But That's I love right. America and I think, I think we could win it, man. I don't want to, you know, you know, I can. All right. All right. Next question. We began by talking about the closing of the frontier, the closing of the celestial frontier. Take a look at this tape, this excerpt. Thousands more lined the Florida coast to watch the launch in person. History is happening and we just like to be a part of it. At 2 p.m., Hurley and Bankin strapped into their Dragon space capsule to make history. The president and vice president arrived for the first manned mission from U.S. soil in nine years. But then, just 17 minutes before launch, with rain, wind, and lightning nearby, SpaceX Mission Control finally pulled the plug. You saw all those clouds. That, that was just this very morning as we record this. That yep. was this morning in Florida where SpaceX, a private enterprise, which of course has my approval, was about to take a couple of NASA astronauts up to, this is, it's technology, it's piercing the closed frontier. Yep. And then the clouds rolled in and proved that God doesn't want us to do it. It's a little too on the nose, the symbolism. It's a little on the nose. Um, they've rescheduled for Saturday. But doesn't that, you take a look at that and I say, Ross, I'm afraid you have to retract the entire book. <laughs> we, <laughs> you can't ask for a retraction until the rocket actually gets off the ground, Peter. So we'll have to, we'll have to retape. We'll have to retape this segment. For a third um, time. But no, I, I, I agree in the sense that I think that what SpaceX is trying to do and all of the Silicon Valley billionaires who are investing in space are in some sense warriors against decadence, um, you know, with a touch of the huckster and carnival barker about some of them. But, yeah, but no, I'm, I'm, following, I'm following the entire SpaceX phenomenon with a lot of hope and optimism. And there's nothing in my analysis that says we can't that, that decadence can't be temporary, right? That we can't, you know, we can't look back and say, well, this was a lull where we were just preparing for the next wave of innovation or the next wave of exploration. I think there's all kinds of reasons to think that that, that, that is possible. Um, 
So that's, I'll give you that as optimism. Thank you. Thank you. Now, throughout this book, Little Robinson is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. One obvious, and I know that Ross thinks in these terms, you're, you're, you're a practicing Catholic, one obvious answer to all this is religious revival of some kind. And you really don't, you, you, you only touch on that, that as a possibility. You write at the, at the very end, last chapter, I would be a poor Christian if I did not conclude by noting that no civilization, no civilization, not ours, not any, has thrived without a confidence that there was more to the human story than just the material world as we understand it. If we've lost confidence in our own age, then perhaps it is because we have reached the end of our own capacities and we need something else, something extra that really can only come from outside our present frame of reference, close quote. And yet you do not say, repent. I said that in my last book and the book. Oh, I see. That. Oh, so I see. There's only so many I think I, I think I literally, well, first of all, I think the literal last line of the book, which you may be going to have me read, urges yes, people am. to get on their, to get on their knees. But I, I, and I am also, the book that I wrote about American Christianity, uh, Bad Religion, concludes with an exhortation, which some reviewers chided me for my piety, urging people to fall on their knees or go back to church and so on. So there's only so many times, there's only so many altar calls um, that, that you can offer, Peter. But, but I do think that there is, I mean, I do think, I think that there's a kind of obvious sense in which you know, it's reasonable for religious people to read the coronavirus as a divine, if not a chastisement, at least a moment of sort of revelation and exposure, right? Where we've spent all this time sort of burrowing into our virtual cocoons over the last 20 years, and suddenly a pandemic comes along and traps us there. It says, oh, you like, you like, you know, your computer so much? That's the only thing you can look at. It's the only way you can see your friends. Let's see, let's see how you like that. Um, so even, even there, I think it's, it's totally reasonable to look for sort of providential signs that, that sort of point us out of decadence. And, you know, a religious revival here or elsewhere in the world, I think would be, it would be an inevitable part of any actual renaissance, I would All say. Right. One more question, although it's a bit, this is an open-ended question, do with it what you want. But if you'd like to close on an optimistic note, I'd be very grateful. As I, you, you're you're searching for optimism here, Peter, and I appreciate it. <laughs> I am. It. Too hard, I guess. So let's assume, let's assume, let's assume Elon Musk fails. They never really do get those two astronauts off the ground. And instead, decadence just rolls on and on with the, the, the numbness and the kindly despotism that you suggest. And I think to myself, well, no, is there some, the, the parallel that comes to mind is Augustine in, sitting in North Africa and he receives word in 410 that the barbarians have sacked the eternal city. That's worse than decadence. He sees the fall of the civilization that, that, that means everything to him. He's beautifully trained in classical literature. It means the world to him. And yet he goes on to lead such an impressive life that we, the church calls him St. Augustine. So even if decadence continues, what are the elements that would make for a good life 
in a decadent society. I mean, I would say that they're the same ones that were available to Augustine in a more um, catastrophic moment than our own. And, and this is one of, the, one of the things that can be said in, not in decadence's favor, but in favor of not sort of taking its peace and relative tranquility for granted, right? Is that as long as a decadent society is still stable and somewhere short of the full dystopia, it's totally possible to be undecadent in your own life. It's possible mm -hmm. to be undecadent in your own community, your own family. It's possible for, you know, to sort of build outward and try and make your whole city or community or state undecadent in various ways. So I know, I think, I mean, I'm very optimistic in that sense. I don't think that as individuals or as communities, we're prisoners of decadence. I think there are big structural forces that make big structural change hard. It's hard to be president. It's hard to be the Pope. Um, but to be a father or a mother, to be, you know, someone trying to write a great novel or a great symphony, there are ways that decadence makes it harder, but it's still completely possible. And, you know, if you want to found a monastic order or become the equivalent of Bishop of Hippo, all of those, those roles are still entirely available to you. Even under decadence, life can still be lived fruitfully and creatively and hopefully um, although I'm pretty far short of that in holiness as well. All right. Ross, would you close by reading that final passage from the Decadent Society? Sure. <clears throat> to be clear, I'm not predicting the end of the world or the arrival of the millennium here. I'm just saying that if this were the age in which some major divine intervention happened, whether long prophesied or completely unforeseen, there would be, in hindsight, a case that we should have seen it coming. And it shouldn't surprise anyone if decadence ends with people looking heavenward, toward God, toward the stars, or both. So down on your knees and start working on that warp drive. Ross Dow, the New York Times columnist, author of a number of books, including most recently, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. And, and father of, most recently, his fourth child. Ross, thank you. Thank you, Peter. This was tremendous, and if, if possible, even more tremendous than, than our lost <laughs> conversation. And uh, uh, thank you, because I've been desperate for conversation, trapped here in my own house. All right. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Mm -hmm.